Hi, I'm Karen Zissis of ASCOA Online. Welcome back to another episode of Latin America in Focus. This time we're talking about Colombia. Half of all peace agreements fall apart within five years. And just three years after signing a story deal, ex-FARC rebels say they're taking back up their arms. Election violence and a tense situation with neighboring Venezuela only heighten the complexity of the situation. And this is a, a very sensitive, dangerous issue. The fact that there is even talk about armed conflict between two neighbors in Latin America has not developed in, in many, many decades. That's Mooney Jensen of Albright Stonebridge Group, the former Colombian diplomat and co-host of the Altamar podcast, talks about these latest developments with my colleague Holly K. Sunderland. But there are bright spots, according to Jensen, who says Colombia has a pragmatic president in office and a relatively solid economy. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Focus. America Latina in Focus. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. So, Mooney, thank you so much for being with me here today to talk about Colombia. Thank you so much for the invitation. In the last couple of weeks, there have been some particularly sobering headlines coming out of the country. So top of the list at the end of August, a group of former FARC leaders announced they were taking back up their arms, saying the Colombian government had not held up its end of the storied 2016 peace agreement. Um, and then there has been some escalation in recent days um, involving the leaders who are believed to be, and now we believe we know are inside the Venezuelan territory and escalations between the Colombian government and the Venezuelan government of Nicolas Maduro. So first, what was your response to hearing the news? You know, it was very disappointing. It definitely uh, brings back in my mind a very dark time in Colombia's history. Um, it revives a lot of the, you know, terrible violence that the country lived um, and that has slowly receded. Um, it also is disappointing because even for skeptics such as myself, it, there was a, a, some hope that this peace agreement would stick. And it definitely underline, underlines the fragility of the peace accord and um, a lot of the loose ends that remained after it was signed. So I was also unfortunately not completely surprised. And I don't think that uh, Colombia was taken completely off guard by this announcement. Maybe the timing, maybe the style. But there was a lot of indication that um, the, the agreements, especially with some of the heads of the FARC, uh, were eroding and that there was a lot of tension. I know um, I heard from the, the late Colombian peace expert, Virginia Bouvier, that she said about half of all peace agreements fall apart within the first five years. So we still are obviously clearly within that time frame. What were some of the indicators to you of the fragility of the agreement? Indicators of fragility were, I mean, the obvious. The first is the fact that the budget for the all of the post-peace agreement implementation was, was insufficient and has been insufficient, so it's really hard to put it together. The second is that there are many questions about um, the 
you know, transparency and the, effect, the effectiveness of the HIP, of the uh, Justicia Especial. And there was a lot of questions about how um, this would be the right mechanism to to do all of the, the, the judicial proceedings. And then mm-hmm. on the third part, um, you know, this was not a politically motivated decision. It was clearly a, a result of these people fleeing from justice from crimes they committed after the two peace agreements were signed. So there was a, a, a definite, um, you know, flight uh, decision that was taken by these leaders. And in particular, I mean, the people who were on this video making this announcement, one was Ivan Marquez, who was the lead negotiator for the FARC in Havana, and then also Jesus Santrich. And here we're just using their noms de guerre, but um, they're the ones they're most commonly known by. And so Santrich has been a real lightning rod in this process. And he, after the agreement was signed in September 2016, the U.S. Southern District of New York accused him of drug trafficking. And because his crimes were allegedly committed after the agreement was signed, that means that he would be subject to extradition to the U.S. So he's been fighting this for the last several years. He was sworn in as a member of Congress in the middle of June. And then barely two weeks later, he disappeared from the reintegration camp where he was staying. And so he's really come to represent so many people's frustrations with the process. And I think his supporters have said there were threats against his life. But like you said, it looks like he was fleeing from justice and fleeing, we now know, into the Venezuelan territory. Well, a little bit about Marquez and, and Santrich. And Marquez was supposed to be the diplomat and he was the head you know diplomatic negotiator in the peace agreements but he too has been accused by the u.s of drug trafficking so definitely some issues with the with the judicial system there santrich was accused after the peace agreement and that was very important and there were some uh, back and forth where he was sworn in as a member of congress and then there were you know conflicting rulings in his case and then he disappeared so this decision obviously was in the making. It was not a, you know, spur of the moment choice for them to make this announcement. And it was definitely a result of the judicial proceedings for them against them, especially in the United States. And also of uh, this, what has been revealed recently, um, terrible kind of mixture of organized crime and, and politics that has become public in the past a uh, few weeks, especially after the Semana investigation, uh, showed very, very specific evidence of of this, you know, horrible uh, criminal cluster, which includes the FARC dissidents and their leaders, the ELN that are mostly harbored in Venezuela, um, the parts of the Maduro government, and uh, even the Cartel de Sinaloa. So it's quite clearly a multinational you know, criminal organization that's taking shape, or that never stopped being um, a criminal organization. Yeah, and I feel that's one thing where people are still trying to keep their eye on is exactly... Um who this new group comprises. Is this, a, a you know, the FARC 2.0 kind of resurgent or is it a new group, like you said, that includes ideological groups like the ELN? Again, the Sinaloa cartel has made an appearance and obviously there are still drug trafficking networks operating in the group and other illegal armed groups like the um, paramilitary Gulf clan. So there's still a lot to be seen of who this group is and then also what their resources are too, since that was another fear people had forever was that when the FARC disarmed and turned in their resources, they weren't being forthright and that they were still keeping some of their resources. And now that kind of hunt is on to see where those resources might be. 
you know, as, as valuable as the effort for a peace agreement was, um, one of the, I think, weaknesses is that it was put together as a political negotiation. And it, at many ways, ignored or underestimated the amount of drug trafficking that FARC has done over the years. And the fact that they have financed a lot of their operations through drug trafficking. And now, as far as whether it's new, whether it's not, I think it's a regrouping or a reaccommodating of, of these criminal groups into a very dangerous cluster. And they do make their money out of drug trafficking. That's very clear. And the you know inter- intelligence, both in Colombia and outside of Colombia, have proven that. And also by um, illegal mining and other illegal activities. So they certainly have the funding, and they certainly have the political strength that has been growing, especially with the Venezuelan government harboring a lot of the dissidents along the border. So this new development only proves what many suspected, and many in the Colombian armed forces already had intelligence about. So now let's talk about Venezuela's role in this, because the Venezuelan government at first, you know, denied, obviously, that they were harboring these rebels. But then um, Semana magazine has published Venezuelan intelligence documents that say that the group is, in fact, in the Venezuelan territory and that they're to be protected by the order of Nicolas Maduro. So how has Colombia responded? Um, How have other countries responded? And where does the situation stand? I mean, this is a a very sensitive, dangerous issue. The fact that there is even talk about conflict, armed conflict between two neighbors in Latin America has not developed in in many, many decades. The fact that Maduro is constructing this narrative, whereas he is the defender of peace and Colombia is is the, the, the country that has um, done you know all these aggressions against Venezuela is also dangerous. Um, the region, fortunately, as well as the in- multilateral institutions, have been supportive of Colombia recently. Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil and the Ecuadorians have also been supportive and, and urging caution on for all of this talk about military exercises from Venezuela allegedly defending themselves from Colombia. Colombia has been very prudent in their public statements about this. It is in no one's interest to fuel a war or any type of armed conflict between the two countries, except perhaps in the interest of Nicolás Maduro, who really wants to, you know, raise some problems with Colombia as as part of it as a political strategy. Yeah, anything that gives him something to rally around. That's uh, the oldest trick in the book. So another headline then that came up, I mean, all this is coming at such a fraught time in general, but then also Colombia has local and regional elections coming up at the end of October. And also at the beginning of September, a Karina Garcia, who was a candidate for mayor in uh, the western part of Colombia, was murdered along with her mother and four other local leaders. And this, she is not the first um, political candidate to be killed in recent years. There have been almost 500 local community leaders killed from, since the signing of the peace agreements, and according to the Public Defender's Office. But why has her case in particular become a touchstone for so many Colombians? It was putting a face to a wave of violence that's been growing as the electoral calendar heats up. 
She was um, a young woman who had advocated for peace in a very sensitive region in southwestern Colombia, where they have kind of the the perfect storm of illegal mining and drug trafficking and, uh, you know, paramilitaries and indigenous communities with very radical agendas. So she was kind of a voice for peace. She was young. She was assassinated with her mother. She had... Um, you know, publicly stated that she was being threatened. And it was, it really, you know, in, in all of situations of violence, there's there's one incident that puts a, a face to it. Unfortunately, it's not the only one. And there's been a mix of two pretty obvious situations. One is that the electoral calendar tends to result in waves of violence, not only in Colombia, but in other countries, but especially in Colombia, where a lot of these elections have stakes in very sensitive areas where there are paramilitaries and drug trafficking and guerrillas in kind of in the same in the same community. And the other is after this announcement by the FARC, which was followed by a series of very specific acts of violence. So it was not just an announcement. It also was a new kind of era of of attacks on the part of the FARC. Mm -hmm. against institutions and the perfect targets are, you know, the campaigns. I mean, I remember we um, we actually hosted you here at ASCOA last spring in 2018 in between the um, legislative elections and presidential elections. And both you and my former colleague Adriana Larota were saying that was one thing that was so notable about the 2018 elections is that there was so little violence after years and years of covering alongside election results was instance of violence that had happened on election day. You know, that too reminds reminds us of a very sad past and the fact that, you know, electoral calendars were synonyms for violence. And that also had abated in the past few cycles and now is getting, you know, so much worse. You read the headlines around the world and they're all about the wave of violence in Colombia's election, about the number of candidates that have been killed, about the mayors from the Centro Democrático that have been killed and threatened. And there's the numbers are terribly, terribly worrying. It's uh, every day there is a threat against a candidate and every two or three days there is either a killing or an attempted killing. And remember, we still have over a month before the, the late October elections. And I think that probably is going to get worse. And it poses another challenge for President Duque, who has attacks on many, many fronts right now. I mean, the president obviously isn't up for election in this in these um, elections, but his party certainly is fielding candidates and um, looking to make some gains, too. How do these recent developments shifting party strategies as they head into October? Well, I think that there's a general sense that the country needs to unite against these waves of violence, and that is kind of the only silver lining in in the current state of affairs. The Duque government faces pressure to create a grand coalition to combat all of these parallel challenges that he has. He's Remember, President Duque was elected, and he faced the implementation of the accords, filling the legal loopholes of the HIP finding money for their land restitution and for all of the you know the rural programs that the peace agreement accounted for protecting human rights defenders there's been a, a, also an outbreak of, of human rights defenders um, that have been killed you know finding political capital to to undergo all of these reforms and then um, you know, facing new challenges from the FARC, from the giant waves of immigration from Venezuela. So that has definitely been difficult, especially within a society that's divided, even 
you know, among the people, but it's politically divided still. As far as the mayoral campaigns, it has turned into a campaign agenda item, obviously, is, is the, the issue of violence, the issue of what to do with the, with the political leaders that are, that are kidnapped and killed and, and threatened. Unfortunately, because it is an electoral cycle and everything is polarized, um, it has been kind of a matter of us versus them, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as we look to the elections, what are some of the notable candidates and races that you have your eye on? Well, obviously, the in Colombia, the country of intermediate cities, there's a lot of elections in in the main capital cities that are that are interesting, and I'll kind of go in order. Bogota is now in a in an interesting phase of the campaign, uh, as has happened in the past, the candidate from the left, from the Polo and or Alianza Verde, the Green Party, are in alliance with the political left. Claudia Lopez is leading, and she's been an, an unquestionable leader in in all of the polls. And, and now she has uh, her contender, um, Galan, who is the son of assassinated presidential candidate Galan, is is inching up in the in the polls, and he's you know in the last numbers getting closer to what was looked like a landslide on her end. So that's one to watch. See what happens. There's two more other two more candidates that also have a chunk, whether there'll be alliances or not. That's kind of a, a home stretch type of campaign that that is proving interesting, especially because the, the both platforms are so different. In Barranquilla, it's a very interesting case of how to run a city well. Alejandro Chad has been immensely popular. His predecessor, El Sanoguera, was immensely popular, and now leading the the polls pretty comfortably is his successor, Jaime Pumarejo. So continuity works in, in some places. In Cali, it's always the same story. It's the establishment versus, um, you know, the political leaders. Jorge Iván Ospina is probably going to win also comfortably. And then Medellín is, again, an, an interesting storyline. They have an immensely popular mayor, Federico Gutierrez, and now the front runner is Alfredo Ramos, who is a son of a senator as well, and he is, um, is from the, the right. So the Medellin continues. I was just there recently, and I, I spoke to you know the taxi drivers and the Uber drivers, and there is a very strong following for President Uribe still. And regardless of, you know, they have a very civic, independent mayor, that political current is still there. Yes, he made sure to build himself a movement that has yeah, not died down. I mean, Absolutely. Partly because he is still in Congress and very vocal, so. Quite active. Okay, so we've talked about a lot that's happening. Obviously, it's easy to kind of see where things can go off the rails here. But in a different scenario, if things are able to turn around, what do you think would be your best hopes for Colombia in the next couple weeks, few months, or the next couple years? We always have to remember Colombian context. We, we, as Colombians, tend to dive into the problems and see everything as a crisis and a chaos. But Colombia has institutions that could be could be better, could be more independent, but are strong and they're functioning institutions. It has a you know a responsible president at the helm who's a moderate who is also respectful of those institutions, who is willing and not necessarily fully able, but willing to work with other political groups. It's been a high performer or at least a strong performer in the economy in a in a continent that's very volatile. And then thinking of other countries like Argentina, Colombia has mostly a avoided, you know, economic crisis and is growing faster than it was supposed to grow, which is uh, unusual for any country in the world. The IMF has already downgraded global growth 
twice or three times this year in Colombia it's been it's been kind of upgraded in the past few months and you know the investment is up Colombia is now leading the the Pacto de Leticia on environmental protection it continues to be you know a strong voice in the multilateral world if Duque is able to consolidate a political coalition in light of these external threats. And, and let's, let's, let's list them really quickly. The immigration from Venezuela, the coca production that still refuses to go down, and now this axis of terror, as it's starting to be called, that are, I think that this is a, a good opportunity for him to to create some very strong alliances on the people who really believe in democrat you know in democracy and, and the rule of law and then there's programs that are working education programs and um, his commitment to the orange economy is something that slowly is this transforming society if you look at a lot of these mayoral elections the the independents are are growing um, inclusiveness is growing so I wouldn't be completely pessimistic about Colombia I think it's a it's always a resilient and strong performer we've been through difficult times in the past and the, and the country has proven that institutions usually prevail well Muni that's all I have for today so thank you so much for your time thank you so much thank you for listening I'm your host Karen Zissis This episode was produced by Luisa Lemmy. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. For upcoming concerts, visit musicoftheamericas.org. Your reviews help us spread the word. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, and write us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. <laughs>